So in that recovery process, that long, those long years that I took to really um, help myself figure out that that unmanageable life had so little to do with really drugs or alcohol, that had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with how am I, how do I see myself? How do I truly, how am I midwife and me? Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Cherry! Hi, how are you? Hi, my friend. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. It's been a long time. I know. I haven't seen you, um, I think, maybe three or four years. I, know. I mean, I've seen the, you. I see you all the time on social media, but yeah. I haven't seen you in person. The pandemic yeah. changed everything, didn't it? It did. It did. I see everyone on social media, but um, I don't see them in person. Well, I'm so glad that you're here with me. Um, for those that don't know you, um, let's do an intro. Like, who are you? Where are you? What are you about? Well, um, that's. I guess it would depend on you know, what topic we're talking about. Cause the first thing I'd probably say is I'm grandma. <laughs> That's like my favorite thing in the whole world. Um, I am in right now I'm in Highlands Ranch and that's in Colorado. Um, and I'm, um, I've been a, a grandmother since 2016. That's my favorite thing in the whole world. I've been a mom since 1982. Um, I've been a nurse since 1990, my first job ever in a hospital was in 1984. Uh, that was as a grill cook in a Catholic hospital <laughs> in um, Springfield, Missouri. Um, I got my introduction to hospitals in 1982 when I had my first son and he had a terminal liver disease. It was um, considered terminal at the time. It's called biliary atresia. Anybody who's ever heard of that um, may know that now it's no longer considered terminal, but we lived on a pediatric research unit here actually at the, Col- the University of Colorado Medical Center. We were there for on and off pretty much for two years. I was a teenage mom and um, pretty much was just told he's not gonna make it. He's gonna die by the age of two. And um, I said, well, that's not right. Um, and so we, um, I learned everything I needed to know about that disease. He had an experimental surgery at the time called the Kasai. And the Kasai now is considered routine, but at that time we had to sign everything um, 
in the world to say that they could experiment on my child. And he's going to be um, 40 this year. He'll be 40 in December. Wow. Yeah. So wow. he's, been, he's been written up in a lot of journals. Um, he ended up wow. eventually having a liver transplant. He, there are very few kids his age who, he's not a kid anymore, obviously, but who have, um, who have made it this far. There's not very many wow. people his age. That's how I got introduced to nursing. So I'm a nurse midwife. I've been a nurse midwife. I've been a nurse since 90. And then a nurse midwife since 1995. And um, so I guess that's probably what most people think of me as is um, a midwife. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. And you have practiced in all three environments. I have. I um, originally started out in the hospital setting and never, well, you know, it really never dawned on me that I was smart enough really to go to college even to even, you know, be anything other than a mom or a secretary. My mom was a secretary. People in my family really didn't go to college. My, my dad did go to college for Bible. Um, he is a Pentecostal preacher. I don't know if you know anything about preacher's kids, but, um, you know, Dr. Phil says, if you can get that preacher's daughter out the back window, you're in for a good time. So, you know, I don't know. Preacher's kids are not, we don't have that greater reputation, I think. But um, we moved a lot as, as kids, you know, like every single year. I think I went to one school two years in a row when I was a, a sophomore in high school. But other than that, we were always gone, always moving. Um, but I just, I figured that I'd be a wife, a mom, maybe a secretary. But my child was sick and I was tasked with this really important job of learning about his disease. And I was told, basically, you're not going to be able to take your son home if you don't know how to take care of him. And so I said, well, okay, teach me. And, you know, I love the surgeons. I love the physicians. But honestly, it was the nurses who taught me everything that I needed to know. They taught me how to draw blood from him. They taught me how to give him medicines with injections. They taught me about the labs. They taught me about the disease process. They taught me about he he had a, a stoma that drained bile from his liver. They taught me all about how to take care of that. They taught me how to start IVs on him. And they taught me everything about his, um, you know, his nutrition, um, his developmental processes. They taught me about how to have fun with him, um, mm. to not be afraid. And, you know, I, I was amazed that I was smart enough to do that. The other things that they taught me were how to stand up for myself. And I didn't know how to do that at all. Um, wow. I didn't know that the birth that I had with him, I knew that it wasn't right, but I didn't know that it was so violent I um I was really oppressed in that that birth um but I thought because I had been treated that way so long in my lifetime I thought it was pretty normal and then they told us that actually he would do better kids who are chronically ill do better if they have a sibling and so we said well okay let's make him one and so we did and um I had another really violent birth now you know in the early 80s so that was 82 and 84 those kinds of births were really pretty common. And I think, you know, I heard, I heard you tell your birth story. Um, I listen to you a lot. <laughs> You're pretty popular. <laughs> um, I listen to your podcast. Um, and, you know, the births that I had were pretty common. You know, IVs, shave. My first baby was born on my first anniversary on my due date. I didn't think it was very fair. I got the triple H enema, you know, the high, hot, and hell of a lot. Um, that's not very nice. Um, but I got the big enema. I got shaved. 
I had, um, I wasn't allowed to get up. I labored in a tiny little closet on an OR, OR cart. Um, you know, I had to, you know, barely could roll over. Um, I had continuous monitoring, even in the early 80s, they, they didn't know how to read it. They didn't, there was no central uh, monitoring location. They would stop by every couple hours and look at it, but they didn't really know what it meant. Um, they didn't let me get up to go to the bathroom. I had a few ice chips. Then when it was time to have the baby, they pushed me down into the operating room and loaded me over onto the, the gynecology table, put my legs up in the air. There was everything covered with drapes. There was one tiny little place where my um, perineum was exposed. Um, a person who came in, I didn't know, I never met them before. Everyone had um, hats and masks, even my husband at the time. And, and um, you know, I was, um, my hands were strapped down with leather um, straps and I was sort of yelled at. Um, even my own husband at the time told me to be quiet. He worked there to not embarrass him. Um, I felt really scared. I felt very vulnerable. I felt really frightened and cold. Then someone I didn't know came in and just ran their hands inside me and, um, you know, cut a big episiotomy. Um, the baby came out. It was really funny. My my um, sister, who is my little sister, had red hair, and I said, "I'll take anything at all, but a redheaded baby." You know, I had no ultrasounds. I didn't know what I was supposed to have. I didn't, you know, we didn't do genders or anything. And the doctor um, literally like hit my bottom with his hand and said, congratulations, you have a son, the boy. And it was redheaded. And I said, oh my God, it's so beautiful. But it was like, duh, I knew. I knew it was a boy the whole time. Um, you know, he was gorgeous. He had red hair. But I, again, he was taken over to a warmer. My husband went over there. I didn't see him. They wrapped him up and took him off to a nursery. Um, I, I, I was left there, cold, vulnerable, shaking stitched me up, and then wheeled me back into the recovery room. Eventually, they brought him to me, and I started to unwrap him. And sort of like Christmas, you know, you don't really sometimes get that Christmas spirit. When you're preparing for Christmas, you, you know, you put everything out, you get everything ready to go, and you don't really feel it sometimes until that next morning when you open up the package. I started to um, open up my package when he was with me in that recovery room. And I, I unwrapped his little um, blankets. He was all swaddled up and I started to peek at him and he looked up at me and he had that beautiful red hair. And I said, oh my God, I was so vulnerable. I was so naked. I was so open. I started having some flashbacks of things that had happened to me when I was a child. And I looked at him and I said, you're so worth it. And um, I, I found out that I did something that was really incredible, even in those vulnerable moments. And even when I felt so violated, something really beautiful came from that. And I had this beautiful son. And so he, uh, he and I bonded and then we bonded even further over the next years of his chronic illness. And, um, you know, even today, he and I have this very secret sort of empowered relationship where he, there's just no words that can describe how it is when you are tasked to be that close to each other and have to, um, you know, really dig deep down and, you know, take care of each other. I've had periods of time in my life when I was really sick and he's the person who took care of me. So, um, yeah, that's kind of born. Was, you were both born that we day. We were both born, yeah. We both grew up um, in that experience. So he, um, he's an amazing person. He's an amazing dad. 
Um, he is, he is, um, he's my kindred spirit. So yeah, he, um, he taught me things about myself that I could be vulnerable, I could be hurt, but I could also stand up for myself. So that's how I got introduced to nursing though. And I became a midwife um, because of those two births. I went to nursing school and I, um, I knew I was gonna be a nurse midwife. So I didn't go to nursing school because I wanted to be a nurse. I didn't really know. I actually, in 1980, um, I guess it was 86 or 87, I went to a MANA conference and I met this really cool lady. Her name's Anime Gaskin. And um, <laughs> I met her and some of, some of the other ladies and, you know, signed, signed my book. And, and I heard about these ladies on the farm and I heard about some ways to have babies, but I still didn't really think that that was possible for me because I didn't really deserve that. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't clean enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't good enough to have that, but I still thought maybe I could go in the hospital and if I was good enough and if I behaved enough, then maybe I could help people have a better birth there. And um, so I heard about this place called the Frontier um, School for Midwifery and Family Nursing. And I used to listen, I, um, I lived in um, Missouri at that time. And so I would listen to Tony Robbins. Have you heard of Tony Robbins? And I would listen to him on the little um, cassette tapes. I bought, I secretly, you know, behind my husband's back, I bought these cassette tapes and I would listen to him talk um, yes. when I would drive to work at night because um, I worked the night shift, of course, you know, <clears throat> you take care of the kids in the day and you work at night and I would listen to him t tell me how um, I could do it, you know, if I put my mind to it. And so I, um, I applied for midwifery school and within four years after I graduated from nursing school, I was in midwifery school and you know that was um just this whole crazy other world and I really started to um meet some people that I thought were man the most beautiful icons that you would ever hear about Kitty Ernst was one of my instructors um she yelled at me one time to get my mind off the perineum and I thought lady you don't even know that's like all I think about you know she's catching babies <laughs> Um, she gave me my first B ever, and that was in birth center. You know, they taught this course, these courses called birth center, and she gave me a B, and I couldn't believe I got a B from Kitty, Kitty Ernst. Um, over the years, I used to tease her about that, and she said, you deserved it. You know, all you could think about was catching babies. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Penny Armstrong was one of my instructors, you know, the, the author who wrote a great book about delivering babies in Pennsylvania, so jealous of her. Um, you know, I wanted to be like her when I grew up. Um, obviously, you know, she was um, a beautiful lady who changed some really um, important lives there. My uh, first um, preceptor was Diane Barnes, who was a midwife in Missouri. And um, yeah, I know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I caught my first 24 babies um, with her. My actually, my first job as a nurse. Well, as a student nurse, and as a nurse is at Parkland Hospital. Now, Parkland Hospital is Dallas County's county hospital. That, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. That's where they write Williams Obstetrics. So huge county hospital. We did about 1,500 births a month there. Very, very high risk, high volume, high setting. Um, and I actually got really turned on. 
I mean, I didn't even know I had that kind of adrenaline. But, you know, anything you wanted to see, anything you wanted to hear about, if you read about it, it was there. And um, I really found out how, um, how much I could move, how much I could grasp. And so wow. Parkland Hospital is where I trained, actually, as a student nurse. I worked there for two years as a student nurse and then um, a few years as an RN. And um, that's where I worked with um, 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 Nancy Joridi, Mary Brucker. They were starting Parkland's midwifery program when I was there. And that was wonderful to watch you know, that unfold and to really get to see um, some protocols being written and to see how that, um, how that all works. Um, wow. I got to work with the residents. I got to work with medical students. I got to work with um, Dr. Pritchard, you know, Dr. Um, Levine, those people who write that book. Um, anything that you saw, you stopped, you took a picture, you um, took a culture, you know, you had to describe everything that you were seeing, you documented everything. Great, great, really um, good training for anything that you could think of, you know. Um, we didn't use MAG for preterm labor. We didn't do epidural. You know, we, I got to see a lot of physiologic birth in a high-risk setting, and that was amazing. Um, but anyway, so then I went to midwifery school, and I got to do things with Diane Barnes in her little birth center in Reed Springs. Then I went to Kansas City and did um, birth in a hospital with a dynamic uh, nurse midwife who did gynecology and she did surgery and she did all kinds of births in the hospital and got a really well-rounded experience there. So my first job was I was a hospitalist midwife in Meridian, Mississippi. And wow. boy, I was hot there and it was stinking hot. Yeah. Um, I was so stinking hot and there were so many bugs, um, but it was fun. I took anybody <laughs> who came in the door. You didn't have prenatal care. That's what I did. I got to do um, all the people who didn't have anybody for their care. And nobody thought that was odd. Nobody thought that it was odd that I did preterm births or breech births or, you know, twins or whatever. Nowadays, obviously, that's a political hotbed. But um, yeah, I did that. And then I did a National, National Health Service course stint in um, Chattanooga for a couple of years and got to train lots of students. And I um, brought midwifery care into two inner city clinics in um, uh, Alton Park and Dodson Avenue clinics. And then we delivered babies or caught babies at um, Erlanger Medical Center. Worked with the um, perinatologists there, the medical students and the residents there. That was wonderful. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then did private practice until I actually, um, years later I took a break. And that's another story. So that's a big, long introduction. I know you asked me for an introduction. I love it. Yeah. I I'm always happy to talk about that because it feels like um, when people think that they can't, you know, how do you, how do you get there? And I, I really, um, I didn't know how to get there. I wasn't sure. How could I get, do something that seemed so far from who I was, my background, very poor coming up, never heard of you know, what I wanted to do. I never thought that that was anything that could be possible for me. And literally, I just did a little piece at a time and um, just researched a little piece at a time and took it A, B, C, D. I'd say, well, how do I do that? You know, and I would, I would ask people um, to help me and, you know, send me the application. And then I would look at the application and I'd think, oh my gosh, I how, how does that work? 
I didn't have a computer. There was no such thing as a computer. I had a typewriter. I got so excited that typed three lines at a time. And then, you know, we type it out. There was no computer for your papers. I mailed Kitty Ernst my papers. And she'd mark all over them in red and mail them back. You know, comps were on paper. Um, everything was long distance. But, you know, if you have perseverance and if you pray really hard and if you wish really hard, um, you can do it. It just takes a lot of, a lot of work. What's your favorite part about being a midwife? Yeah. Well, you know, when I came back to midwifery, I told you I took a long break from midwifery. In the process of all the things that happened there, um, and I'm very open about my history, um, the, at, towards the very end there, um, I was doing a lot of, a lot of work. I, you know, I took, I was on call 24 seven for many, many years. And um, the private practice that I was in, I was the only midwife and um, I didn't take breaks. I wasn't, I didn't, I was never really off call. And I probably did 20, 25 births a month. I saw maybe 30, 40 people a day in the office. I did colposcopies, I did a lot of GYN care, I did a lot of prenatal care. And, you know, you and I talked about that, um, that feeling of not being enough, of feeling like you have to do way more than anyone else just to be even with everyone else. And um, that goes back to, you know, histories um, that are way more in depth than what we probably really even want to talk about tonight. But um, it got to the point where I just had an unmanageable life. And when you have yeah. that, when you have that unmanageable life, you tend to um, seek out things that are going to help you cope. Um, this is coffee. <laughs> yeah. Coffee is one of the coping mechanisms. It is, for one of the life. coping mechanisms. Yeah. yeah. And I just it's one of the healthier, healthier I know. coping. I know. Mechanisms. And then, you know, I've got this birthday. Um, yeah, coffee cup. It says, be kind of a bitch. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I don't, one of my kids got that for me. Anyways, um, so, you know, literally on the edge of losing everything because as hard as I work and as much as I put out there, because, you know, you think that you have to be everything to everyone. Um, and you think that if you don't- Well, that's, that's one of the distortions. Right. right. One of the distortions right. is this belief that you're not enough if you aren't doing. Right. If I'm not working my, you know, everything, um, if I'm not doing all of it, then I'm not doing any of it. If I'm not um, killing myself to, to, um, to help people, if I'm not, um, if I'm not available to you all the time, then I'm, then I'm not doing the right thing for everyone. So eventually, you know, I gained a lot of weight because I, I was eating you know, terribly because I was trying to fill that hole. Um, I was, um, you know, never slept. And when I did sleep, it was terrible sleep. And I would just like, you know, almost die into my sleep. And eventually I started um, using some substances to try and help myself um, sleep and never, never used anything like street days or anything like that. But I had an injury. I'd broken, I um, broke my back in 1994. I crushed my TA vertebrae, I lost an inch in height. So, you know, use some like um, muscle relaxants and things like that. And um, eventually I literally had gotten so sick that I, I reached out to um, some of my midwifery cohorts, my peers, and said, I need some help. I, I need help. I'm, I'm really struggling here. And I was told that, um, you know, 
that's just too bad. You're going to need to find something else to do. Nobody, mm. nobody understood and nobody wanted to help me. And mm. I couldn't reach out to my, um, to my spouse because that was not a good relationship. I, there wasn't really anybody else that I felt comfortable reaching out to. And so um, I did find out that you could go to the Board of Nursing. The Kansas Board of Nursing had a program called the Kansas Nurse Assistance Program that if you walked in the door and said, I need help, that they would let you do that anonymously. Like you couldn't, you didn't, they wouldn't actually report you to the board. They would just let you have a peer assistance program and be with people who were your same, um, you know, um, they were also nurses and pharmacists and doctors and things that who were having the same sort of issues and they would help monitor you and, and get you into programs and, um, and help you get better. And so I did that. I said, you know, I need some help. I need somebody to help me so that I can manage this better that I can um, learn how to do um, my work better and, um, you know, and not kill myself. Because, you know, over 26, I think it's 26 plus percent of nurses have addictions um, or alcoholism problems. Um, they don't think that it's gonna be midwives though, right? Because if you're the healer, if you're the ultimate healer, if you're the person who's being with women, then obviously you're not gonna be having a problem, right? Then that's crazy. Go to any AC&M conference or, um, you know, that's the American College of Nurse Midwives folks. But if you go to any um, sort of midwifery conference, what are they doing? They're, you know, they're drinking and, and I'm, I'm not necessarily they're teetotaling, but they're having wine and they're, they're enjoying themselves. And um, I could never do that because that wouldn't be um, something that I could do could relax. Um, but, you know, physicians are very high on the list. Um, anybody who has the caring profession are high on the list of not having a manageable life. So anyway, I went into that program and I was starting to do better, but um, my, my relationship and my marriage was falling apart and eventually I just lost everything. I had to walk away from my career. I had to walk away from my marriage and, and my career and you know, lost my home and lost my, um, you know, lost pretty much my, my self-esteem. And um, yeah, I, my, the physician that I worked with was actually pretty wonderful and said, um, you know, I will help you. I'll send you to a, a rehab program and you can get some help and you can come back here. But my, my husband took my kids and he went to um, another state. And so I just said, um, and I had four kids by that time. And I said, no, I think I'll, I'll just go to bed for three months and be depressed. And um, so I went to another, um, I followed them eventually. And I, I just took that break from midwifery. That other state, which was Wyoming, um, you know, you don't have to report when you were in Kansas, but when you go to another state, you're supposed to report. And I just, um, I went to Wyoming and, you know, that's a whole long story. So the state boards of nursing, by the way, are not your friends. They, um, they're there to protect the public. They're not there to protect you. So anytime you, you um, go into those places and they're wanting to, to monitor you, um, they write whatever they wanna write. They put whatever out there that they, you know, the verbiage that they put out there is not necessarily the truth. It's maybe bits of the truth. But um, I did that off and on for like 12 years. It was a long, long time. Eventually I came back to midwifery. It took a lot though. It took a lot. Um, when you're being monitored for those things, you, um, you call every single day, like seven days a week to see if you need to 
do a random drug test. You go to meetings, um, Caduceus meetings, which are meetings with people that are your peers. You also go to regular other meetings like AA meetings, um, or you know, so that's Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Sometimes you go to Sex Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous, whatever it is that you're passionate about. I learned some really great things about myself. Um, I found people in those rooms that were, you know, really suffering the same way that I was and was able to actually start to use those things in my, um, in my nursing practice. I did some other kind of high-level clinical, um, clinical nursing things, like I started the IV pick team. Um, you know, that was a great way to um, still, you know, service or minister to the community and um, not lose my skills and, you know, still do a lot of the things that I did as a midwife. Um, you know, I would sing to my little old ladies as I'm putting in their pick line that they're going to have for their chemo. Um, I would, you know, still um, work with women who had cancer and things like that, but I, um, I was not attending people at birth. I also did sexual assault nursing. That was very true to my heart. I did a lot of kids because um, that's where my history started. I had a history of sexual assault as a, as a child. And, um, you know, when that hits you and when you're, when you have those kinds of histories and then you, then you, um, then you become a mom and you give birth and you see how that correlates and how, how, um, how you view your body and how you see yourself, how you see the vulnerability that you have when you're a child and um, the parts of your body that are used to birth a baby um, don't feel like they're loving and cared about. Um, when you have to go back into that place in order to surrender and allow this sweet little spirit to come through, that is, that is one of the hardest things I've ever done. So in that recovery process, that long, those long years that I took to really um, help myself figure out that that unmanageable life had so little to do with really drugs or alcohol, that had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with how am I, how do I see myself? How do I truly, how am I midwifing me? And um, yeah, I learned a lot about language. I learned a lot about um, finding, finding the power that I needed to see myself in a whole different light and um, find my way back to midwifery by finding my way back to my child and then being able to come back into that, you know, that girl who was laying so vulnerably on the table and saying that you're all right, you're enough. So I got certifications in recovery coaching and life coaching and um, started figuring out that it was okay for me to come back to midwifery and that I deserve to do that. I did sexual assault nursing with kids a lot. Um, I did case management. I learned a lot of things about Medicare law, et cetera. And then I went back to Frontier Nursing University and I did a whole midwifery program over again. Even though I didn't need to, I, I was still licensed, I was still certified. But again, you know, you have to do more than everyone else to be enough. And so I have another, another master's, um, you know, postmaster certificate in midwifery and got a doctorate. In that process, I came out of the hospital. I said, you know what? I got every, every skill known to man in that hospital setting. And I said, you know what? I bet, I bet women are better, um, better satisfied, more 
happy when they're left to this physiologic birth and not um, forced into things that they don't necessarily want to do that are not really evidence-based. And so I came out of the hospital and I did my doctoral work in a birth center, um, in several birth centers. And I did that on a communication tool. And that was um, through the National Service, or no, the National Institute of Health and um, Frontier. And we did it on a communication tool. And then, you know, you met me when I was at the Denver Center for Birth and Wellness. So I did, I was there for um, two and a half years and then came out and now I'm working with CPM, some certified professional midwife in the home birth setting, um, which is, you know, a whole nother amazing thing to see people in their own home um, and how they're amazingly um, having their babies and having their families um, without all the hullabaloo of you know, those litigiously minded things that go on. Um, I, I'm seeing people who are trauma, um, who come in, not because they're necessarily running a home birth, but because they just don't want the trauma. And they're having the history of trauma. Um, and they're, a lot of them are coming in just for the trauma work itself. And then finding that they're having their babies at home because they are feeling empowered just through that part. Sherry, your story is so amazing. And <clears throat> I, I just, I, I'm so honored that you're willing to be vulnerable and open and share this. And I think it will touch a lot of people. Um, your story is um, so, I think, familiar. And I just wanted to name a couple of the familiar stories. Obviously, your, your, your particular struggles, obviously, are individual, but this codependent belief that we have to serve others at our own expense mm -hmm. is so pervasive. And then that leading to substance use um, and addictions is I think also quite pervasive. Like you're saying, it's, it's actually a very high rate in nursing. And I think it is in midwifery as well. And I'm reminded of that Gabor Mate quote um, where he says, it's not about the addiction, it's about the pain. Mm -hmm what is that addiction trying, like how, what pain is that addiction trying to address? That's the real question. Right. And that's what you saw with all these people that you met in the same situation, right? Is it's, mm -hmm. it's pain, right? Everyone has found a coping mechanism to deal with their pain. It's just not a great coping mechanism. Exactly. Every time I would, um, you know, every time I would put another bite in my mouth, I, you know, I could weigh, um, I could weigh 280 pounds and it wasn't enough. I got down to 115 pounds and that wasn't enough. Uh, my house could be um, clean, so, you know, so down to the most minute little corner and it wasn't enough. Or it could be so massively crazy junk, you know, everywhere, chaos all the time. And it, it wasn't enough. There were such extremes in my life and none of it mattered. It wasn't enough. I made great money, you know, um, a lot of good money in private practice, and that wasn't enough. I lost everything, lost my house, I lost, you know, my um, my um, my ability to make the money that I was making. I, I lost all of it. It wasn't enough. I couldn't get low enough, and I couldn't get high enough. And I'm not talking about with the drugs, but I'm talking about with the situation. It didn't make a difference. 
Um, yeah. it, it didn't matter until I just walked in the door and sat down and said, you know, literally I, I was face down on the floor, um, in a, um, you know, in a, a particular facility and I won't even go there, but I just said, God, take this from me. I can't do this by myself because I couldn't find a person who is, you know, in my same situation, who is, uh, who understood like this caring role that I thought that I needed to play um, that would help me or that could, I, that I could even talk to every time I would reach out um, to, you know, other nurse midwives anyway, I, I would just get that look of, well, that, are you, you know, that's not, that's not appropriate. Um, yeah. You're going to need to do Judgment. something else. Totally Only judgment. judgment. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I still get that today. I still yeah. hear that today. You know, we have, I was meeting today with the Colorado um, Coalition for Safe Transfers. Um, there, there's a group of people that are working on this, this transfer um, protocols, and we're trying to make it better for people who are out of hospital coming in and better for those people who are sitting in the hospital setting, waiting for the people to come in and not feel like, oh, you know, I'm going to have this vicarious liability just by taking someone. You know, the yeah. biggest thing I think so for a lot of nurse midwives is that um, we are subject to all these complaints, and you know what that's like. Um, that just because someone doesn't understand what we do out of hospital, we might have a complaint against our license. There are several of us right now that are dealing with these things, and um, literally, it's simply because of the misunderstanding of what yeah. we do and how that happens, yeah. right? So I've been dealing with that right now for like almost four years. It's very difficult for people to see, you know, to stand in what we do and um, to have that kind of responsibility and think that we would want it, you know, that kind of burden on us that we would, that we would sit at home and just, um, you know, avoid a, avoid a transfer just because we want more than anything for someone to have their baby at home or in a birth center. That's not the goal. The goal is a healthy mom and a healthy baby. Um, we would transfer in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, you would go if that's what the appropriate thing would be to do. But you know, things can sometimes happen, and you don't have control over every single thing. You follow protocols, and you know the right things to do. But sometimes something could happen, and you don't have control. Um, you would think that people in every setting would understand those things. Things could happen in any setting that you don't. You could not um, change. However, it seems that when you're out of hospital, you're always to blame. That's yeah. an unfortunate it's thing. Such a, it's such a double standard, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we see that all the time. The, the community-based midwives are un, in a fishbowl. They're just under right. constant surveillance. And the hospital seems to practice with total anonymity. Right. I, I, I have a quote to share with you. And um, I, I want to sort of, stay at this place, which is really vulnerable and really, really powerful that you're sharing. And this is a quote by Bessel van der Kock, who's one of my real heroes and mentors around trauma and how trauma lives in the body. And he has this great quote, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of a gnawing internal discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs and in an attempt to control these processes, 
They often become experts in ignoring their gut feelings Mm -hmm. and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They learn to hide from themselves. Does that align with you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I know. And in that hiding, we we use numbing techniques to hide. So food can be numbing. All manner of substances can be numbing. Sex Mm -hmm. can be numbing, right? All of these are coping mechanisms to try to deal with the root pain. Absolutely. You would think that, um, you know, when you say I've been, you know, I've been um, addicted or have substance abuse problems, people would think that, oh, that person is out there, you know, scoring whatever no substance abuse or alcohol abuse literally is just you know taking taking something to help me sleep just taking something to help me check out uh, or turn off the turn it off yeah because i could not face face the demon that is me face the and the hyper vigilant like it becomes this like constant right like you said taking care of the kids during day and working at night, you, you, you become constantly on. Right. How, yeah. yeah, right. Or how can I, um, how can I even face my, myself, you know, that, um, that, that person who is supposed to be, um, you know, the imposter syndrome, right. I, that, that feeling of there's just no way I could actually be the person that everyone else thinks that I am. I know mm-hmm. that I'm a dynamite nurse. I know that I'm a very good midwife. I know that I have skills that are that are amazing and probably far Rare. beyond what that yep. many out of hospital midwives are ever going to have. However, um, that feeling of oh my god, what if I can't do all of those things for everyone? And um, you know, what if I'm? What if something does happen? Well, the thing that I have to know every single day, and what I tell my clients who come to me for this trauma feeling or this, this trauma work, who had a history, is that I, there's just no way that I can live that way anymore. I have, to, I have to know that there's a power greater than me that will not allow me to be robbed anymore of my joy. That I have to set my intention every single morning and say, thank you, God, for the breath that I take. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to appreciate every single moment I have. I'm going to be 60 in March. 60 years old in March, and I never thought I'd make it to 60. Um, if I'm gonna, if I want to continue to live this life and be blessed with the joy of these grandkids and these, these families and you know these people like you who are talking to me right now, then I have to accept that perhaps if I want the privilege of, of you know, being in on this podcast right now and talking about what I'm talking about, then I may have something along the way that could happen, but I, I'm not going to allow that to rob me of the joy. I'm not going to allow that to be invading my mind or in my heart anymore. I simply have to accept the joy and accept the happiness, that journey that's coming to me. And I'm going to set my intention toward that. And I'm going to call it to me. We call it, um, you know, manifesting or, you know, the, um, the law of attraction, right? But honestly, it's just that I've had every bad thing that could happen to you. I've pretty much almost had almost every single thing that could happen bad happen. 
And you know what? I'm still here. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still here. And, you know, um, <laughs> you have to, I heard um, Gary Vaynerchuk today on you know, one of his walks that he said, you know, quit I love worrying. I know. Yeah. Quit worrying about everybody, what everybody thinks of you. Um, because honestly, whatever you, you get to this point in life and what difference does it make? They're going to push you anyway somebody's always going to be worrying about what you're doing anyway and it's just reflection of how they feel about themselves um yeah. yeah i'm not i cannot sit there anymore and let it overwhelm me because then what what would i be what good would it be or how could i be ministering or serving other people in order for me to keep this happiness or to keep this joy or to keep this this gift that i want to give i'm gonna to have to give it away and to Oof. um yeah yeah you can say that again that's so powerful it's true I have to give it away so you know um the business that I have right now I contract with um CPM and honestly you know she's really working as the midwife I'm working as this trauma coach and as this person who is um you know, the, I'm also a midwife and that's how people recognize me. But, and, and a lot of the people that are coming, you know, to us are people that I've attended their births before, but really, you know, it's not about the catch. I mean, we literally don't catch babies really hardly ever anymore. It's the families who do that. It's not the moment of birth. Babies should be touched by their family first anyway. That's really how um, you should be greeted to this planet. The transition that's happening should be happening by you know touching the person who created you that should be mm. greedy that's the person who should greet you not us right and the only person the only time we should greet you is if there really is some sort of you know a complication where we need to have ha, um step in a little bit but mostly it should be about um the family did you see monet's birth film oh yeah so we were we were there we were we attended her birth but you don't see us there it wasn't about us it was about her and Ryan. You know, they yeah. were the people that were greeting their yeah. baby. Um, yeah. I know that she got a lot of flack for that, but you know, because all the people yeah. wanted her, right? Everybody wanted her to have their baby, her, her baby yeah. at their facility. Um, yeah, everyone honestly, knows. Okay. Well, yeah. well, the, and even if resuscitation is needed, I, the parents' hands should still be there. Their voice that's should right. still be there. Yeah, it's right. a, that's the main thing. Absolutely. Oh, you're so inspiring, Sherry. And I just, I just want to take a second. Um, and I just want to acknowledge what you've shared with us today and how powerful it is to tell your truth and how telling your truth has acknowledged something that most people are not speaking about in midwifery. People are attracted to midwifery and specifically, I think, community-based midwifery a lot because of their trauma, how they were born, how they yeah. gave birth. It traumatized them. And they came to it and said, this could be different. I could be a part of making it different, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But until you go in and heal the trauma that brought you there, you live in it. And living in the trauma is a kind of alternating hypervigilance and shut off numbing. And the hypervigilance and numbing like spectrum creates a lot of damage. And you speaking about the damage that you went through is like really powerful. And I just want to thank you for that. And I, I want everyone listening to really 
hold this with the kind of reverence and sacredness that it deserves. We need to reframe addictions and substance abuse in our culture to, uh, to really, like Gabor Mate focuses on, and where is the pain coming from, not where is the addiction coming from. Right. And really focusing on the trauma like you're doing for all of your clients now and not focusing on the coping mechanisms, which obviously are not fantastic, but they came about for a reason. Nobody actively seeks substance abuse if they're not traumatized, you know, like right. they go hand in hand. Right. Yeah. It's the language. It's so it's much the about language. the language. We never, I would never say in my practice, let you allow you you get to that none of that ever happens you know when somebody comes in they say do you make me I, that doesn't even come up the verbiage is here's the risk here's the benefits um here's the evidence what would you like to do for yourself and your family what what would that entail for you and then um, you know they decide yeah. you know yeah. i used to get yeah. shushed by my um by my abuser that he would put his hand over my mouth and shush me. I could hear my grandfather in the barn um, and I would I try to yell out for him and I, he would shush me and it just drive me crazy for somebody to make me quiet. And so I don't ever, ever, ever want to do that to someone else. So now if somebody asks me, I tell, you know, I would say what happened, how I feel, where I'm at. I'm in a book. There's um, a book called Addicted Healers. I'm, oh, um, I've talked in front of nursing students. I've always, anybody who wants to know, I'm going to say, I'm going to be able to, you know, testify because it's the quietness and it's the shame that keeps us down. And the minute I stand up and I say, you know what, you can't shush me anymore. Whether it's the board of nursing or whether it's somebody who thinks that they are better or somebody who just doesn't want to know about it um, because it makes them feel something about themselves. They just can't do that anymore. And I'm not going to do that to anyone else. If you want to, yeah. you know, if you have something to say about your family and what is going to be right for you, then we're going to support you. I'm going to stand with you and I'm going to support you um, the best that I can. So, mm. And I appreciate that about you, hon. Mm. You're doing mm. the same thing. You're doing the same thing where you're at. So Amen. we're going to see. We're going to see how this all plays out with, um, you know, with we'll the have a revolution. I yeah, think. I don't know. Yeah. I may have to do that whole PMA thing. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to look. I may be over in India, but, you know, no matter where well, I'm at, no matter where I'm at, I'm still going to continue to wear my truth, right? Yes. Yes. And I love this. And it's, it, it goes right in, in hand with the third quote that I pulled for today's conversation. Yay, and that okay. is this quote um, from Brene Brown. And mm -hmm. that is that um, our, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. Like radical self-acceptance is the only pathway towards that filling that hole and belonging. Yeah. And you're doing that so beautifully. I love that about you. Yeah. My daughter hates it sometimes, but she still loves it too. Oh, my kids hate it about me as I well. Know. <laughs> I know. But that's yeah. a part of me belonging to myself is that mm -hmm. I keep saying my truth anyway. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I told, I've told my daughter um, and I, my granddaughter, you know, you will understand. You will understand when your day comes, 
I used to ask my mom, um, why, why me? Why this? Why did this have to happen? And she'd say for such a time as this. And I'd say, that just makes no sense to me. That's bullshit. <laughs> she, she didn't like that when I'd say that. But honestly, I can see it now. I can look back and I can see now why every single detour, every single turn, why that had to happen or why, you know, why I had to walk through that or slide yeah. through it or crawl through it. Because there is an empowering moment where you can see that the thing that happened to you is why you are the woman that you are today. And, you know, if I have to sit there and I have to crawl and I have to, you know, go through the muck to help someone else be able to stand up, then I'm going to do that. And I'm going to be yeah. all right. And I'm going to be grateful for it. So that my so daughter away. and my right. granddaughter can stand up yeah. for themselves and not have to be shushed ever. Yeah. 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 Here's her quote. Belonging starts with self-acceptance. Your level of belonging, in fact, can never be greater than your level of self-acceptance because believing that you're enough is what gives you the courage to be authentic, vulnerable, and imperfect. When we don't have that, we shapeshift and turn into chameleons. We hustle for the worthiness we already possess. And I drop the hustle and you drop the hustle mm -hmm. and we just show up as we are. And I think that might be the biggest gift that we have to give away. And I, I know that you're continuing to give away your brilliance. And I, I do here in this podcast. And I'm just so grateful for you. Just wow. so grateful for you. That's what I told you. I think that we're soul sisters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad that our paths cross. And I'm so glad that we got to share this. And um Let's end this Thanksgiving episode with um, what we're most grateful for. Would you share what you're most grateful for right now? Mm -hmm. See, I'm most grateful. I'm most grateful for um, my breath. I'm most grateful for my prayer. I'm most grateful for that feeling that I have just to know that um, but all I have to do is be conscious and aware that I'm woke and that, you know, I could say, you know, I'm grateful for my kids and my grandkids and my husband and all of those things. And those just are so given. I, I'm, I'm grateful for just that every single moment of the day that all I have to do is just be conscious, you know, I can look back at so many instances in my lifetime when I was worried about this or worried about that. And I can't even imagine, I can't even, I can't even um, fathom that I had any, you know, that it mattered at all. You know, whether it was uh, somebody who was judging me or that I was judging myself or that, you know, whether it was a house or a car or a pair of shoes or, um, you know, somebody's impression of my work or whatever that I can actually literally just sit here and take that breath and I can feel my lungs get bigger with air that I can you know have a positive thought about someone that I can literally say to somebody who I've been thinking about I've been praying for you and it matters it matters to me that I can think about you and where you're at and the things that you went through and I have a thought about that and I, I feel like when I say 
I'm praying for you. I'm sending you love and light, which is such a, you know, clip that people say, I do, I mean it. And that I can feel it. And it's right here. And it's in my gut. That's what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for just that consciousness that, um, that I have every single day in my life. You know, I'm mm-hmm. just, I'm present. I'm so present. And I, I don't have to be numb to life anymore because I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to be here. I'm not afraid to be there. I'm not afraid to be on the other side. You know, I know that's mm-hmm. coming. It's all right. It's okay. That journey, we're just, you know, I'm just a spiritual being having human experience. It's all right. It's okay. I'm all right. Yeah. Can you see it? All is well. There you go. <laughs> the only way out is through. Yeah. Right. Well, I, your, 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 your gratitude is making me so, um, think about the parallels between this and birth, right? You don't have to numb your birth. You can feel it all. You can be present. You don't have to be afraid. I can sit down in it. Yeah, you can just deep dig deep into it and experience all of it. And I think in life and in labor, um, there, you know, labor is kind of a microcosm of life, who you are, in one or the other doesn't really change. You are the same person, whether you're laboring or you're living. I'm so grateful for this connection and all the connections. I'm so grateful for our listeners who continue to show us so much support um, and give us great topics and great uh, presenter suggestions. I'm so grateful for the revolution that's really starting to gain traction. Things Mm -hmm. are changing and we can all feel it. Some of them are really getting tight and changing for, you know, the worse, but a lot is changing for the better. And a lot of that is happening on this very individual level where we connect with each other, this belonging to each other and Mm -hmm. to ourselves, I think is the, the root of this, of this formation, this transformation that we're all in belonging to ourselves and belonging to each other, showing up for each other, the authenticity the vulnerability, the truth telling. Thank you for being a part of that with me. Yeah, we call that Midwest for life. <laughs> Midwest for life, yeah. <laughs> That's my tag oh. right now. I'm your midwife for life, baby. <laughs> yes. I may never see your vagina, but I'm gonna be your midwife for life. It's all right. Because midwifing is, is about transformation. It's That's not right. about a body part, right? Get your That's eyes right. off the perineum. It's just right. <laughs> That's right. I was so offended when she said that, but she was so right. Yeah. She was so right. She was so yeah. right. Yeah. Midwifery for life. Yeah. Thanks, my friend. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. 